I don't know. Hey Alexa, what's the definition of fable? A fable is an abbreviated fictional story that aims to teach a moral lesson. Typically, animals or inanimate objects are portrayed as protagonists in the story, and anthropomorphism, or giving the characters human traits, is employed to convey the desired moral. Fables can be written in prose or verse and may feature other mythical creatures or natural forces as main characters. Okay, okay, that could work. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Rock and Roll Fables with Kenny Bodkin. Okay, I got a story for you. In 1973, it had only been three years since the breakup of the Beatles, and Paul really hadn't had a lot of success, critically or commercially, uh, with his music. Uh, Now, you know, years later, we look back on those earlier albums and their classics, but at the time, it wasn't so. So, he was going to record his third album, and he was looking for a place um, outside the UK, outside of EMI's uh, grasp there, so he could do something different and um, kind of uh, relax with it a little bit more. So um, he chose uh, a recording studio in Nigeria, Africa, in uh, Lagos. And uh, he was attracted to the idea of recording in Africa. So in August... The band, which was McCartney, uh, which was Paul McCartney, uh, Linda McCartney, um, the uh, ex-Moody Blues guitarist and pianist Denny Lane, Henry McCullough, and Denny Sewell on drums. They started rehearsing for the new album at the McCartney's uh, farm in, uh, in Scotland. So during one rehearsal session, McCullough and McCartney got into a fight, they argued, and McCullough quit and walks out. Uh, about a week later, the drummer Sewell, Denny, uh, yeah, Denny Sewell, he left um, and quit. So, and that was like the night before they were set to fly out to Nigeria. So this just left Paul McCartney, Linda McCartney, and Denny Lane to record um, in uh, in Lagos. So they uh, they they went and they brought the uh, the former Beatles engineer uh, Joff Emmerich with them. One of the reasons McCartney chose Lagos to begin with is he felt it would be a glamorous location where he and the band could uh, get some sun on the beach during the day and record at night. The reality, however, was that after the end of a civil war in 1970, Nigeria was run by a military government with corruption and disease was commonplace. So in addition to all of that, they get to the studio and um, for a band like Paul McCartney and Wings, it was a very substandard situation as far as the equipment they had in the studio, the abilities they had to overdub and stuff like that. Um, so they, it, was, it was substandard. 
it was pretty high tech uh, and in uh, Nigerian standards, I'm sure. But but we're talking a you know internationally um, famous pop star recording uh, recording in their in their little village there. So um, and on top of that, that's not all. Uh, various incidents has plagued Wings' uh, stay out there. While out walking one night, McCartney and Linda were robbed at knife point. Uh, the assailants made away with all their valuables and even stole a bag containing a notebook full of uh, handwritten lyrics and songs and cassettes containing demos for songs that hadn't been recorded yet. So Paul pretty much had to recreate all those songs uh, from memory, uh, not only lyrically, but uh, but the music for it, because uh, it was all on the cassettes and all written down, and he had it with him, and, and they took it. He says that uh, they probably just overdubbed the tapes with uh, the um, African music that they listened to. So another occasion, uh, Paul was recording some uh, overdubs, and... Uh, he starts gagging and starts coughing and uh, and can't catch his breath and he starts turning white and he's uh, you know everyone in the studio is freaking out so they take him outside for some fresh air but it turns out it's a billion degrees it's Africa hot out there so they take him outside and he feels worse and um, and faints dead like right at their feet uh, Linda starts freaking out that he's having a heart attack uh, and uh, they they did a you know they had doctors come and uh, they diagnosed him as uh, having a bronchial spasm uh, that was brought on by too much smoking. Later on, uh, drummer for the for Cream, Ginger Baker, uh, invited Paul and the rest of the Wings to record their album at his studio in Akija, which is also in uh, in Lagos in Nigeria. Uh, Paul agreed to go there for one day and record the song Picasso's Last Words, Drink to Me. Um, and it was recorded at uh, ARC, is his recording studio, um, with Ginger Baker contributing a tin of gravel as a maraca. So the band recorded the majority of the album's tracks um, uh, in six weeks in Nigeria. Uh, they flew back to England uh, in, uh, in September 73. They ended up going into uh, George Martin's studio and finishing everything. And they did Jet there. And, um, you know, and, and everything really mixes together really well. It's an a album that definitely stands the test of time. And if you were to, you know, pick out the uh, post-Beatles work, uh, you know, you would definitely um, have this at the top of the top of the list. Uh, you'd have uh, All Things Must Pass, Plastic Ono Band, and certainly Band on the Run.
Okay, so they get back to London and they've just spent six weeks recording in Nigeria. And the first thing they do is uh, check the mail that's that's uh, built up while they've been away. And in that stack, there is a letter from EMI urging them not to go to Africa because the area you're going to be in is experiencing a huge outbreak of cholera, which is a disease of the small intestine, which can cause all sorts of trouble. And they received that, and it was dated before they went to England, and they received it the day they got back. <laughs> Isn't that something? Okay, I got a story for you. 1973, November 20th, The Who were playing at uh, Cow Palace in San Francisco. They had gotten through 15 songs in their set when the drummer, Keith Moon, passed out behind his drums. Someone backstage had handed him three pills and and told him, you know, take like a quarter of one of these because uh, it's an elephant tranquilizer. Well, turns out um, Keith doesn't listen to advice like that. And he downed a handful of them and said, I'm Keith Effin Moon. I can handle it. Townsend then told the audience that Keith had uh, eaten something that did not agree with him and that um, uh, he was not going to be able to return to the stage that night after roadies had dragged him backstage. Um, So he asked the audience if anybody knew how to play drums. I get that trouble. Uh, uh, Can anybody play the drums? (laughs) 
meet somebody good. And uh, Scott Haplin, 19-year-old kid from Iowa, raised his hand and they brought him on stage. And um, he said it was like one of the few times you could play, you know, with royalty. You know, and, uh, he played uh, three songs with The Who that night. Smokestack Lightning, Spoonful, and uh, the Who original Naked Eye before the show ended. And, um, of course, that would be a dream for any young musician to play with a band as big as the Who. So uh, he, got, uh, um, he got a set of drumsticks, a nice uh, Who tour jacket, uh, several pictures with the band, and the coolest story of anyone in his class. Isn't that something? Okay, I got a story for you. The album Boston, their debut album, uh, came out in 1976. And at the time, it was the best-selling record in the history of records. Right? It, uh, it had um, three hit singles, more than a feeling, long time, and foreplay, peace of mind. Which, uh, you know, there's a few other songs on there that they still play on the radio too. Rock and Roll Band and Hitchin' a Riot, all those um great songs are, are still played on the radio today so um but to get to that point what happened was tom schultz uh was an mit grad and he was working at polaroid and in uh in massachusetts and he was uh an amateur musician and he would uh, gig around town in boston and he had a setup in his basement to record and he took his time and wrote the entire album and recorded the demo for it all by himself. Him playing all the instruments, wasn't sure what to call it, you know, so he called it Boston because that's where he was from. Took it to the uh, record companies and everybody passed except Epic Records. They, they said, this sounds amazing. You need to go into the studio with the band and uh, and record it for real, you know, in L.A. And he said, "Well, no, they're they're pretty persnickety. We're going to have them record in um, in Boston." So he goes back and puts together a band on the fly of friends of his from Boston. He already had Brad Delp who was singing. Um, with him on the uh, on the demo, who had uh, incredible chops, and he um, went out and he recruited other other members of uh, the Boston music community to to play on this uh, on this amazing piece. So the the record that they ended up giving to the record company was exactly like the demo, except some of the parts were dubbed over by. Uh, um, by the uh, new members of Boston. 
So um, they were a huge success. They were the first band in the history of bands to debut in Madison Square Garden. Their first gig in New York City was at Madison Square Garden. That is something else. The album is often referred to as a staple in 70s rock and has been included on many lists of essential albums. It has sold at least 17 million copies in the United States and at least 20 million worldwide, making it one of the best-selling debut albums of all time. Many years later, 1991, Nirvana put out Smells Like Teen Spirit, changing the landscape of popular music, and they'll be the first ones to admit that the guitar riff was lifted directly from More Than a Feeling. Isn't that something? been listening to rock and roll fables with kenny bodkin we can be contacted at kenny.d.bodkin at gmail.com thanks for listening and support your local musicians i want to listen to nickelback